Well, it is Easter again. Feels like we do this about once a year. And I bet you know what my sermon is going to be. Jesus is what? The tomb is what? The stone is what? All right, you got it, right? So, so we're here. We might as well do something. We could tell the story from one of the perspectives of somebody who was there. That could be sort of interesting. We could also uh, do a defense of why I think Jesus was truly dead and buried and why he truly rose in physical form. But I thought this year I might do something a little different. See, as I was reading over the story this year, I noticed a number of really odd things about the Easter story that nobody seems to talk about. And I've never really talked about many of these things. There's just some details in there that we sort of skip over that are sort of weird and odd and strange. And so this year I thought, I want to talk about seven oddities in the Easter story. So I'm going to do some from the cross and then also some from the resurrection. So here we go. Seven oddities in the story that maybe you've never heard anybody really talk about. Number one, the darkness on the cross. We don't seem to talk about this. It doesn't make many of our pictures. But the gospel tells us that it was dark while Jesus was on the cross. Mark 23, 44 says, It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. So we don't really talk about this. What, what does that even mean that it was dark? Is it like nighttime, like pitch black? Does it mean it was kind of cloudy and overcast, like it was like stormy? That when, when Luke says that the sun's light was, was, was failing, does that mean like it was coming like almost like it was the end of the day, like it kind of got towards nighttime? Or was that when the darkness started to end because the day was ending anyway? It's kind of an odd description, and the details are fairly vague. Um, Jewish time was marked from the hours of the day. They didn't have watches, and so they had to sort of understand kind of what an hour was. And so there were basically 12 hours of daylight, and then your hours were a little longer or shorter depending on the time of year. And so, so when they say the sixth hour, that's high noon. That's when the sun is like there from their perspective, right? So at the moment that the sun is supposed to be at its brightest, somehow it gets dark. Some have tried to argue for some kind of eclipse, but we we know that that's actually impossible. Passover always happens during a full moon. Eclipses only happen during a new moon. And so uh, the other thing about an eclipse, if you've ever seen an eclipse, how long was it? A couple minutes, right? This is hours. This describes it as hours. So this weird phenomenon of the darkness, which can't be a natural phenomenon, starts right as the hours were supposed to be the brightest. And the interesting thing about the passage, if you read all four Gospels, during this three hours of darkness, not only is there actual darkness, but in the narrative there's darkness. Like we, don't, we don't get any description of anything that happens in that three-hour period. Jesus is simply dying on the cross. So whatever the phenomenon, there's, there's a huge metaphor here. The darkness is in the Bible a symbol of sin. 
of divine judgment. In the prophets, there's this coming day of this Lord, the day of the Lord, and this day is going to be a day of darkness. And so what's happening? Jesus is taking the judgment and the sin of the world, and the world is showing that darkness in that moment until his death. Number two, there's a torn curtain. Luke 23, 45, it says, and this is in other Gospels too, but, uh, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And there was in the temple these spaces. There was a space where the women could go, and then there was a space where only men could go, and then there was a space that only priests could go into, and then there was even a tighter space where the Ark of the Covenant was that the priest, the high priest, went into only one time a year of the, at the Day of Atonement. And our sanctuary is still to this day set up like that. Okay, You're in the congregation part. And then there's like some steps here to this would be like the priestly part. And then where the choir sits now is technically the Holy of Holies in this metaphor. Um, it's just a metaphor at that point. Okay. <laughs> but the, the, this curtain that separated where the priest came in every day. It'd be where this wall is now to where the Holy of Holies was. This curtain was really thick. It was 30 feet wide and it was 60 feet tall in that room. So when the Bible says that the curtain was torn in the middle, 60 feet ripped. So that area of the Holy of Holies that you could only go in, only the high priest could go in there once a year. Now the curtain is torn. Can you imagine the chaos? Right? Who has to go sew that? It's also 60 feet in the air, and only the high priest can go in there. Somebody's got to go fix that curtain. What's the metaphor, though? The metaphor is that, that that holy of holies that only the priest could go to, only the high priest could go to, now is accessible. The curtain is open. There's no more gap. There's no more big curtain that separates us from God's presence. We can go fully into God's presence and actually, our sanctuary to this day has a metaphor for that, has a symbol for that. We do have a curtain in the sanctuary, but where is it? It's in the very back. It's in the very back. And I will tell you, because I've peeked, it's just a brick wall back there. Okay? Just block wall. There's nothing secret. Why? The curtain is all the way in the back because we have full access to God thanks to Jesus. Isn't that a cool metaphor? The, co- the tur- curtain was torn two. Number three odd thing when I read the Easter story, I am amazed every year that the disciples have no idea what's going on. Does anybody else notice this when you read your Bible? Like Jesus has been talking about this for a while, guys. Like even if he didn't get the resurrection part, like the death part, he's been really talking about. Right? Like just a couple days ago, he said, this is my body broken. This is my blood shed. And then they're like, wait, what's happening? They don't get it. And they, a couple of them wrote Gospels, right? Like, they, 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 they wrote about how kind of dumb they were. They don't get it. How can they be surprised? He's been talking about that. I mean, maybe it's the shock of the arrest, the shock of seeing this one that you love go, into, uh, go to the cross, go to a tomb like that. But then again... 
How often do we do this with God? Where we hear what we want to hear. Have you noticed people can hear what they want to hear? I mean, not you, but other people can like watch certain news channels. They can like pay attention to just certain statistics and ignore others. You can kind of do with God the same thing we do in our lives. We can ignore certain facts and certain revelations and then see the ones that we want to see. When we do that with God, it's always dangerous because God surprises us anyway. But especially when we're looking for the wrong things. So the darkness of the cross, the torn curtain that the disciples seem to not know. Number four is a funny one for me. Uh, and so one of our church members was, was messaging me about this uh, this week. But th- there's a fun foot race in the Gospel of John. Have you ever read this? Okay, let me read from the Gospel of John 20, starting in verse, th- verse 3. But listen to how funny this is. And, and just, just, just to know... The beloved disciple, often called the other disciple in John, we think is John the disciple, who's actually writing the gospel, is the one who's sort of the other one. So listen to this. So when Peter went out with the other disciple, John, and they were going toward the tomb, both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Stooping in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths laying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by himself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Did you catch that? Like four different times, John's like, hey, hey, remember, Peter, I got there first, right? Like I I made it first. I was the one that got there first. And then I was I went in second, but I got there first. Just kind of this humorous little playful thing between Peter and John, who have already we already know this. They've had arguments about who's going to be the greatest. Like, I wonder if there was this little rivalry between them. Like, yeah, Peter, you may be the rock. But remember, I got to the stone first, right? I wish I actually had more of a spiritual principle behind this one. I just find it hilarious that John makes a point of writing this about their little, like, like yeah, I beat Peter at the foot race. I don't know. For me, though, it, it does sort of give a human element to this story, right? It's a reminder for me that these are real people who had real relationships with each other, who had to wrestle with and remember what happened because it actually happened to them. Like, for some reason, for me, this kind of goofy back-and-forth race, or whatever you want to call it, it, it seems to me to show the human side of these stories. I don't know. Just me. Number five. I'm always interested when I read, particularly the resurrection appearances, about Jesus' appearance when he rises from the dead. Isn't it a little odd? If you go back and read the stories for yourself, Jesus is not like angelic. He's not like glowing. There are angels in the story. Nobody confuses Jesus to be an angel. Okay? He's just a dude. He's a person. And these people know him so well. They have traveled with him for three years, and yet they do not recognize him. Until they do. Like, it's, it's really weird. Like, they don't recognize him, and then suddenly they do recognize him. Well, what does he look like? 
And he, and he walks around. He, they touch him. He cooks a meal. He eats with people. If you go back and read the stories, the, the Gospels, the accounts of the resurrection, Jesus is a very physical person. Okay, they, they like make a point to talk about how physical the resurrection is, and yet they don't recognize him. And then the really odd thing to me is that he has scars. Have you ever thought about this? Like when I get an upgrade, I don't want the dents and scratches in it anymore, right? Like when I get resurrected, don't, don't put that scar back on me. Like I'll take a new knee. Thank you. But Jesus has his scars in his resurrected body. Isn't that interesting? But, but of course, your scars make up who you are. And so the redemption of Jesus doesn't take away from who you are, just perfects who you are. And for Jesus, his scars, well, they're medallions of his saving work. So I'm always amazed at the appearance of Jesus in the story. Number six. I love in the story that they think he's the gardener. They confuse him with the gardener. Mary does. Here's John 20, starting in verse 14. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him. and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, and she turned to him and said in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. She thinks he's the gardener. That's a really weird detail. You could think about anything, but she thinks he's the gardener. Now, now Jesus was buried. Um, he was crucified outside of the city and then buried in a freshly cut tomb that was in a garden. It was probably a, uh, a place where they had cut stones to build the temple. They were working heavily on the temple and the temple mount at this time. So it was probably a quarry. And then when they got past the good stones that they could use for the temple mount, what they would do is turn those things into gardens and they would turn them into tombs. And so Mary just assumes he's the gardener. But if you are thinking through your Bible, I hope you're catching the metaphor. Where else is there a garden? The garden of what? The garden of Eden. Okay, the garden of Eden. And there Jesus walks around and he, and he talks to the people. And he's close to Adam and Eve. But what happens? Well, well because of sin... God comes walking around in the garden. And what do Adam and Eve have to do? They have to hide themselves from God who's walking around the garden. He had made them to tend to the garden. He meant them to be gardeners under his gardening, under his creating. And here we have Jesus mistaken as a gardener. And she doesn't have to run from him. Right? Humanity doesn't have to run from God anymore. Jesus is in the garden and instead of running and hiding and covering themselves with leaves, Mary can say, Rabbi, and fall at his feet. It's the repair of the Garden of Eden. So, one more, and this is by far my favorite. I made allusions to this last week, and I want to wrestle with it for a minute here. There are other resurrections on Easter Sunday. Jesus is not the only resurrection that happens. A lot of people forget this. 
or I've never noticed this, but let me read it from Matthew 27. This is written not in the resurrection appearances, it's actually written during the cross. Okay, so Matthew 27, 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and rocks were split and tombs were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tomb after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. How many of you have never heard that before? Anybody? Like, we, we don't talk about this. I don't know why we don't talk about this. I don't know why I've never talked about this uh, publicly like this before. But here's what happens. Okay? In, in Israel, what they would do is they would lay the bodies out after for burial and they would wrap them in cloth they would put spices on them and then they would leave them in a cave with a with a seal over the door for a year to decompose and then the bones would be gathered up and then put into a little box called an ossuary for burial okay so this is what happens to jesus they do it very quickly on friday because sabbath is coming at sundown they come to the tomb sunday morning to finish the burial and he's risen right we know that part okay but here's here's what matthew says Matthew says that there's an earthquake during the death of Jesus. There's an earthquake. Now, this is not that rare over there. This is a, Israel's on a major fault line between the three continents. And uh, they get earthquakes a lot. Archaeologically, we know cities over there have been destroyed because of how serious the earthquakes have been. Okay, so an earthquake happens. But, but Matthew says tombs were opened. And then here's what happened on, on Easter morning, the beginning of the week. When Jesus is resurrected, Matthew says some of those who had recently fallen asleep, who had recently died, who were laying in their tombs, are risen too. They go into Jerusalem and many people see them. Everybody, there were zombies. Zombies on Easter morning. I really wish we had more details about this. Okay, Can you imagine two weeks ago you had buried Uncle So-and-So? Okay, you were there. You were there for the funeral. You had propped the body for burial. You sealed him in a tomb. And then Sunday morning, he walks in. Right? That's what's happening here. Many, Matthew says, many people come walking into Jerusalem. What were the conversations like? How long did they live after that? Right? Matthew, you got to give me some more details here. But Matthew is actually not that interested in all those other resurrections. As I might be. Because what is Matthew interested in? The resurrection of Jesus. And here's what Matthew's saying, everybody. The resurrection of Jesus was so potent. It was so powerful that it was contagious. The resurrection was contagious. Okay? There, were, there were tombs nearby that also had resurrections that day. How do you explain that? I love the symbolism of that. This odd, weird text that nobody seems to talk about that I've never made a real big deal out. But it shows us how potent the resurrection is that it's actually contagious. And let me warn you, it is still contagious. Okay? It is still contagious. Resurrection is still happening. It's still happening in life. It's still happening in churches. It's still happening in dark caves in your life and in holes in your hearts. 
and uh, still happening in this world where there's so much brokenness. Resurrection is still happening. Jesus didn't just rise from the dead. He isn't just, we, we say he is risen, but he's still rising. And not just he's still rising, but we are still rising. He is still bringing new life in your life. And we're, we can look forward to a day where there will be more resurrection. Right? Paul calls Jesus the first fruit. The first fruit. What does that mean? There's more fruit. There's more resurrection coming. Be careful with Jesus. He's contagious. Okay? And those spots in your life that need new life. And those pl- the pain or trauma or whatever you have gone through in your life. Jesus brings new life to those things. He is still rising. We are still rising. So catch it. Catch Easter this morning. It's contagious. Let it get caught in you. Get caught up in new life that Jesus wants to bring for you, for this world, for the brokenness that's all over the place out here. Jesus is still bringing new life. May we keep our hope until Christ comes again and more tombs are emptied. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.